Thanks for tuning in to Justice and the Law, a Mitchell Hamlin Law Review podcast. In today's episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Michelle Statz about her work related to access to justice in rural communities in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. Michelle is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School, a 2021-22 American Bar Foundation Access to Justice faculty scholar, and affiliate faculty with the University of Minnesota Law School. She is trained as an anthropologist of law, and her research examines how socio-spatial dimensions of rurality influence access to justice, rights mobilization, and the efforts of rural, tribal, and state court judges. Her research has appeared in Law and Society Review, Harvard Law and Policy Review, and American Journal of Public Health, and is generously funded by the National Science Foundation. Michelle's other work includes interdisciplinary projects on global youth and mobility, reproductive justice, and public interest immigration lawyering. Her first book, Lawyering an Uncertain Cause, Immigration Advocacy and Chinese Youth in the U.S., was published in 2018, and her two most recent published articles include On Shared Suffering, Judicial Intimacy in the Rural Northland, published in Law and Society Review, and They Had Access But They Didn't Get Justice, Why Prevailing Access to Justice Initiatives Fail Rural Americans, published in Georgetown Journal on Poverty Law and Policy. Stats holds a PhD in anthropology from the University of Washington, and she lives in Duluth, Minnesota with her family. We are honored and grateful Michelle has agreed to speak to us, and we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed producing it. You are an anthropologist of law. What does that mean? How did you get into it? What did your training look like? We get an idea of, you know, what your career path has been. Okay, so yes, I am an anthropologist of law. Um, and in the course of this interview, I'll try and sway both of you and all of the listeners over to the field. Um, <laughs> I always knew I wanted to be an anthropologist. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and uh, actually grew up on a farm until I was about five. And there's not a lot of money in small family farming, um, but my parents were really, really mindful about taking advantage of free opportunities. And so I feel like we always were going to free museums and always at the library. And I was very exposed to difference, if you will, at a young age and just loved learning and ended up going to college in Chicago, which, I mean, there's like the college within the buildings and then there's the college of Chicago and lived in China. I did study abroad in China and um, then actually moved back and worked on the Tibetan plateau for about a year after graduation. And so I knew I wanted to be an anthropologist and felt like if I could pursue rurality in some sense, that would be great. And ended up starting at the University of Washington in Seattle and thinking I was going to be working with Amdo nomadic Tibetans on like grassland restoration, like, like full on environmental anthropology and realized that I didn't really like environmental anthropology. And at the you same time, you came to the time, dark side. Yes. <laughs> and at the same time, um, my spouse was a graduate student at the University of Chicago. And so we were doing long distance and I was in Chicago in the summers and could speak fairly passable Chinese and started working with this nonprofit based at the University of Chicago Law School called the Young Center. 
and I'm I'm promise I'm getting to your your question here. I would be working in these detention centers for an quote unquote unaccompanied young migrants who had been apprehended and detained arriving from China. Um, but then traveling back and forth between court and the detention center and the young center with attorneys. And it was like real whiplash because I was hearing one account from young people in Chinese and then hearing a very different account from their attorneys. And it took me a while, but it was, it wasn't so much that the attorneys were like willfully misrepresenting what young people were saying, but sort of contorting it to fit within the very narrow confines of immigration law. And it was just fascinating. And it was also a little bit heartbreaking, right? Um, and it, it gave me a sense of what anthropology can do because attorneys were largely only talking to other immigration attorneys and EUIR judges. And young people were kind of talking amongst themselves and they were these like fascinating transnational actors who are so savvy and so cool. And like none of those people were actually hearing the stories of one another or aware of the challenges that, that either side was facing in their work and their lives and their commitments and responsibilities. And so I'm saying all of that because I think that anthropologists are really uniquely positioned to be in the courtroom, to be interfacing with attorneys and judges, to be thinking about like law on the books versus law in action. And then what's on the other side? What are um, different parties' experiences of legal process? So that's something that I'm really interested in, just like collecting different people's interpretation of the legal process and putting it all together. Um, but other anthropologists of law work in wildly different settings, right? Like people can be also doing linguistic work, thinking about the language of the law. Um, others focus on like gender or indigeneity. Um, there's a not surprisingly a big focus on like truth and reconciliation or law in a global context. So it's kind of whatever you want to do, which is exciting and also a little daunting at times. Um, but suffice it to say, like I was doing the work with young Chinese migrants and their attorneys, and it was very much a multi-sided project. So working in like traditional quote unquote gateway cities like New York and San Francisco and Chicago, but then also working in rural spaces in the South and Midwest. And the attorney's work in those rural spaces was even more constrained and far more under-resourced, but they were often much more successful than their urban counterparts. And that was something that I wanted to pursue further. So as soon as I got done with my PhD work, I turned that project into a book and then really pivoted and started writing grant applications and kind of making this claim, like we're not paying enough attention to rural attorneys, we're not thinking about rural judges, we're not thinking about rural litigants or the people who might and often do have justiciable needs but don't ever go to court. Um, so that's what kind of, that's where the space is that I am now. When you mention uh, rural attorneys and rural communities having less resources, what does that mean for some of our students that, you know, are 
primarily metro-based? What does that lack of resources mean? Right, so I have to be careful with this because I really want your colleagues and you to practice in rural areas. <laughs> um, but I also am not gonna be, you know, I, I will be clear about what the problems are. Um, you know, I, I really like get on a soapbox about looking at the broader structures. Um, so for instance, past Governor Walker in Wisconsin rolled out Act 10. Um, that was a very, for many, a very contentious policy. But what it really did was it completely changed schooling in a lot of parts of Wisconsin. And a lot of like the older teachers who had incredible institutional knowledge left. Um, a lot of junior teachers came in. Um, there was a lot of school consolidation and effectively like the school system really changed in a lot of rural areas. And I mention that because it's very hard to recruit and retain attorneys to a rural place that does not have a strong education system. Um, and so I think we can talk a lot about like technological quick fixes or ways to maybe like subsidize law school training for new JDs. But the reality is if you don't have that stronger structural context, it's very hard to live and work. Um, so in many rural communities, not all, there are all sorts of professional shortages. Um, so a lack of mental health providers, a lack of available healthcare. Um, I know certainly in Northern Minnesota where I live, there's been a sort of systematic closure of um, obstetrics units and maternity wards in rural communities. And so it's just more challenging to live in a rural area. Um, and I think that most new JDs are, can probably sense some of those challenges. But I'm always keen to like really push the older attorneys, nothing against older attorneys, but people who, who maybe have observed those changes, but now their kids are grown and it's not like quite such an urgent need to them to say, nope, you still have to keep advocating for changes <laughs> in the community and ways to support younger professionals that really address like the multifaceted needs of young people, especially if they have kids and partners who might not be in the legal realm. Related to that in your um, work, you have talked to many judges. One of them, I think you quote as saying that working in a rural community, you can become jaded really easily. And so I'm wondering what practitioners in those communities, if they're mm -hmm. sensitive to how they might change over time or how their, how their practice might change and how that ultimately affects their ability to, um, you know, help litigants or people that come before them. Right. I think it, a lot of it depends on the personality of that attorney or judge. Um, I've heard many, many times, like it's a small sandbox, so you have to play nice. <laughs> and I think that's actually like a really beautiful thing. So the challenge that a lot of judges seem to confront is that they've, they have to transition from an incredibly like close knit bar 
to then being a judge and not being able to have those same relationships with your friends and colleagues because now you're on the bench. Um, and so I do think that judges experience maybe a different kind of isolation than newer attorneys. Mm. My sense is, at least I've heard it many, many times, though there's a little asterisk with this. I do think that most members of a local rural bar will go out of their way to help new attorneys, to welcome them and their families if they have families. That said, I've gotten to be, I'm a little bit more confident in who I am in these interviews to now where I say, what if that new attorney is queer? Mm -hmm. What if that new attorney is BIPOC? Like how might their welcome be different? Would it be different? And usually there's a little pause and not usually all the time someone's like well I hope it wouldn't be right like there's <laughs> there's still a real strong sense of welcome but I want to push people and say please make sure that you have this intersectional view of the kinds of attorneys that need to be in rural spaces because rural spaces are diverse they're not inevitably white communities um, and so I'm, I'm pushing back a little bit more now as I'm a bit more advanced in this research project. But I do think that, I think judges, I've been very fortunate to work with unbelievable judges and they are so committed and working so hard to offer a sense of access, to offer deep respect and an experience of fairness or justice but I do think it comes at a cost. Does that have an impact on these communities' ability to retain new attorneys or practitioners? Um, you know, that's a really good question. I think, again, this is a limited research project, right? Like I work across Northeastern Minnesota and Northern Wisconsin. And my sense is that the very the attorneys with the longevity are those who are themselves from that area um, and who know the area and who are committed to it and who kind of see the wrinkles in a community and are very persistent in working through them nonetheless. And so I think that like, I, I think Mitchell Hamlin does this so wonderfully already. So I know I'm preaching to the choir. But I think in terms of making law school accessible, of working really hard to recruit students from rural communities, from indigenous communities, that is so critical, right? Because you know that those folks have a, a higher chance of returning and, and practicing. You mentioned some of the research that you've been doing presently about the different ways that rural and tribal communities have been able to take advantage of alternative ways to get access to justice um, and how that might be replicated in more metropolitan areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, it's nothing very sexy, right? Like there's no silver bullet here. I have um, funding for this new research from the American Bar Foundation and I'm also funded by the National Science Foundation. And I'm the whole focus of this new project is on how rural place as um, kind of as place attachment might facilitate a unique experience of access to justice 
that could be replicated in other areas. Um, so to that end, I thought I would work in like four tribal and state courts. And now I have like eight judges who want to work with me, which never happens. Like that's so <laughs> wonderful and exciting. Um, so I'm working in very diverse tribal and state court contexts and thinking about the ways in which judges kind of appeal to this shared experience of place mm. to be like, I know I have a sense of what your experience is like. I have a sense of the injustice that you're coming here with or the ways in which you may have been treated in the past. Um, and then we're concurrent, like it's, it's really, it's a complicated study. We're doing a lot of courtroom observation and a lot of like audio recorded courtroom observation. So we can really hone in on those exchanges in which like what is spoken and what is not spoken is just as important, right? Like where someone sort of intimates like I'm from here too, I get it. And then, and then after the hearing, we're like, if the person consents, we survey, um, the litigant and say, was that your experience? Like, did you feel like the judge understood where you're coming from? Do you feel like you can trust the judge? Do you care about the judge's opinion of you? You know, the judge might know your last name, your family name, what does that mean? Um, and then the really cool thing that I didn't expect to be so cool is we're doing the, these daily debriefs with judges as well. So after, you know, we just got through with one courtroom and we did it at lunchtime, which was fun. And so we could say like, judge, your tone completely changed during this hearing. Can you tell us why? And, and, and it's just like fascinating because almost inevitably the judge will say like, I know that this person has had these experiences already in court. And so like when I'm, when I'm thinking about whatever, like this interaction or sentencing guidelines or blah, blah, blah. Like I'm, I'm constantly reflecting on everything else I know about their legal journey and about this civil case I heard and about this criminal case I had with them. And so I'm still not quite sure what of this would be replicable because I do think like rural judges have to be generalists, whereas the urban bench is very different, right? Like you might be doing family law cases for two to three years and then you switch and so you don't have that same like repetition and you don't have the same relationship and you don't have the same sort of spatial experience potentially as the person before you but i i think that we tend to focus so much on how rural communities are under resourced everything's a struggle no one's accessing justice and at the same time like our survey data are showing us that what judges do really matters to the parties before them, right? Like that eye contact, that knowing the name, saying, you know, I like, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna share one thing that I think is so cool. Um, all of the judges we've interviewed are like, Zoom is wonderful. Zoom hearings are so wonderful because if, you know, someone has insufficient transportation or childcare issues, or there's inclement weather or a long distance, like, Zoom hearings are perfect for our rural community members. And it's a little bit more split between um, the folks who are actually coming to court 
And we recently surveyed one individual and I said, do you prefer Zoom or do you prefer telephone or coming in person? And she was like, I wanted to come in person today because I wanted judge to see how healthy I look. Mm-hmm. She's like, I've had different kinds of cases before this judge. And it is so important to me that she sees in person the changes I'm making. And that is one survey question that we added that I did not expect to be so revealing, but the one about, do you care of, like, do you care about the judge's opinion of you? And almost everyone's saying yes. Like there are a few folks, almost all of them are from external to the county who are like, I don't care. (laughs) But the people who have had a case or multiple cases before a judge who might be from that same county or the same reservation definitely care. And I just think there's a different kind of relationality that we're seeing that exists because of rural areas and not in spite of them. So I I really want to pay more attention to that and stay tuned. Like maybe we can have a follow-up podcast and see if I'll know more. But I I think that we're on to something that's really important and much more positive. I think too that there probably are a lot of lessons that can be learned um, from that research, just that sense of community. I mean, if you know the people that you're interacting with, you're probably more likely to have better results, maybe the judge is going to be more sympathetic or know what what the best option for a certain person is um, for sentencing. Um, I definitely get what you're saying and it is really exciting. I was externing with the attorney general's office this summer working on expungements. And a lot of the people from rural communities, I would talk to prosecutors and they'd be like, oh yeah, I know this person or I know their family and they would talk about that. And then when I would speak to the person who was hoping to get something sealed from their record, they would always talk about everything that they've done to improve their life. And they were so proud and like really wanted like the prosecutor and the court to know that they have changed. And, and I think that that is unique to small communities. Yeah. Yeah. Becky, like you totally hit on something important, which is that there's this court working group, right? Like, it's not just the judge. It's not just the prosecutor. It's like everyone, like the clerk, the PD, like there's, there's just this sense of like, I don't know, a a kind of accountability, but also in the best case scenario, like a lot of people pulling for you, Mm -hmm. but then like, I have to be a good anthropologist here and also think, well, when can that be a liability, right? Like, because I could see that really compounding shame if someone has relapsed and then feels like, oh man, now I let all these people down. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you don't have a judge who's as outstanding as the judges I work with, who is really biased and sees a name you know, on the daily calendar and is like, oh man, that person again, or I know their sister, or I know who she's dating Mm -hmm. and has all of those preconceived judgments. Like I want to be really mindful of that as well. I haven't seen it yet, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I was, that was one thing I was um, wondering when I read the quote about the judge who said that you become jaded after a certain amount of time working in small towns. And I wondered if he was just abnormally self-aware or if that was a common theme that no I think I mean so I I've given a number of keynote talks about this research and I kid you not after every single one someone will come up to me and say 
that was very sobering. And I'm like, oh. sobering. I don't know what is it? What is it with this research being so sobering? But I think like what you said about the jaded piece, I've never had an interview with a judge or probably with any attorney where there wasn't a part in which they were sharing something about someone who um, they had before them on the bench or someone they added advocated for in their work who didn't have something extraordinarily tragic happen, mm -hmm. right? So I hear a lot about overdose deaths, higher rates of suicide, um, right? Like, it's just like, there's a certain amount of heartbreak that I think is just kind of intrinsic to the legal profession writ large, right? Like, yeah. like we need to pay attention to that. I'm not an attorney, but everybody needs to pay attention to the kinds of things that legal professionals encounter in their practice. But where it gets tricky in rural areas is like, there's such a high degree of like social acquaintanceship where everybody knows everyone else. And so if you're a judge, like you can't like, and I know I, I've already written about this, but you can't just like bebop down the hall and talk to your colleague if you're the only judge in a courthouse. Mm -hmm. And you might not have a, a therapist, right? And, and like slowly, slowly social networks get smaller and smaller. And so I do see a lot of judges who like just like, don't have a faith community anymore or can't go out to dinner in, in this town at least, or, you know, can't access counseling because there isn't any, or because they know the therapist, right? Like yeah. just that kind of experience is different in a rural area. Yeah. That makes me think there's been a lot of um, discussion, I think lately around attorneys and, and judges experiencing compassion fatigue. And that is even more true for practitioners who are so deeply entrenched within their community. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I wanted to get your perspective and, and talk about your research about um, different access to justice initiatives that the state and the federal governments have been pushing out to these rural communities and where you're seeing kind of a, a disconnect between what the what the government entities think that these communities need versus what they actually need. Yeah, so it's that's a hard line to toe, right? Because I do feel like these initiatives are really, really well intentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and I also realize that I have a unique vantage point in that I, I get to have the time so long as I have research funding um, to see like how they're experienced and interpreted by real people. Um, and so it's, yeah, I have pretty strong feelings about some of the initiatives I've observed and just some of the conversations about these things. Um, so for instance, I know in Minnesota, there's a, a new initiative like these justice buses that are coming out into rural communities. And on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, like that's that's great for a minor one-off issue. 
um, which some people do have. But if you look at the sociolegal research on access to justice, most people don't just have one legal issue, right? Like it's not just a one and done thing. It's like you have to really get to the meat of what someone's experiencing and all of the nuanced complexities. And that takes time and it takes deep attention and it takes an incredible amount of respect and humility. Um, and on the, the side of the person with the legal issue, it takes a lot of trust, right? To reveal everything that's going on and trust takes time to be developed. And so I think that's where it would be really easy for somebody to be like, screw you, you're an anthropologist. You don't know what it's like, right? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't know all <laughs> of the barriers um, to administering and delivering quote unquote access to justice from the legal professional side. But I do know that like there's a lot of work around say medical mistrust in rural communities and I think much of that is transferable to the legal context. Mm -hmm. Like it takes a lot to trust an attorney with very private issues and complicated issues when you're already feeling stigmatized for not having money to pay for an attorney um, and you face nothing but doors closing in your face for probably a long time or getting kind of shuffled around from space to space. And so I just think like I see these like really beautiful, glossy um, PowerPoint presentations about like all the money we save with different things and like how addressing one legal need can save all this money, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a very compelling argument. Um, it almost feels with a lot of these initiatives, like it's a, it's kind of an unconsidered luxury to think about the dignity of the person who, who has a legal need. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not for a second saying those other initiatives are like dehumanizing, but I don't think that they can ever capture a person's experience to the extent that it deserves to be captured to like meaningfully represent someone or meaningfully address the, the sort of complex nuances of legal need. Um, and I really think there's no, I, I don't even think, I know there's no substitute for direct representation mm -hmm. um, and like sustained representation. So I, I am kind of cheery. Yeah, I, I'm like cheering on different kinds of initiatives and I'm so glad that people are focused on access to justice and thinking about rural access to justice. But I, I get pretty frustrated thinking that there's like some like parachute option, right? We're just gonna zoom right in and fix everything and then head back out because that's not what communities want or need. Um, and I also feel like, again, it's a very privileged position, but I'm constantly exposed to different kinds of literatures that think about access to justice in a more critical way and different studies in which people have said like, hey, you can't just set up a kiosk someone with like, uh, you know, or just like hand someone a court form and expect them to fill it out. And like, what an injustice, right? What a profound injustice to treat someone's incredibly stressful, 
legal needs like it can just be passed right through like i yeah it's i'm sorry i'm not very eloquent about this because it's it really kind of breaks my heart like the fact that this is viewed as a sustainable solution when in truth it just profoundly compounds the anxiety that most folks feel especially like the most vulnerable people who you know if you're elderly and you're already struggling with technological literacy like this is not going to help you or if you're someone who already feels stigmatized or like an outsider with all due respect to wonderful law students, like sitting down with a young law student is going to feel really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I think they're great for some things, but not great for everything. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm sure it's also difficult too when you have people coming up from the city is doing these things because that there's an outsider aspect there too. A little bit. Yeah. And I mean, but to be clear, like, I think just the chance, I think a lot of people really, really appreciate the chance to sit down and just talk with a human. Mm. Um, so that is better than nothing, right? <laughs> like, I think that's way better than trying to like call a hotline, go to a kiosk, mm. fill out a court form, do forms online. Like, so Yes, so please like come right and have those clinics or show up at the library or come on a justice bus like to have a human is always going to be better than to have some sort of technological interface or APP like it just is for most folks. Um, yeah, but I do think you hit on something else that's important Becky. So do you see. Um... I know that this is an incredibly complex issue and there probably is not, I know that there is not one solution, right? Um, but what do you think are our best choices for improving the status quo? Is it really just putting effort into recruiting? And if so, how do we make sure that people stay in those communities? Right. Um, well, this is where it's really nice that you're both at Mitchell Hamlin, because I feel like the school's already on to something very important. Um, so having like hybrid learning options is a really big deal. And I mean, I've worked with so many folks in both rural state and tribal court contexts who have either done the hybrid program or in the process of doing it. And it just provides like rural community members a kind of education and accessibility that they wouldn't have otherwise. So that's awesome. Like that program is really key. And again, like a very unsexy response is just the fact that like exposure is really critical. So I've said before, I didn't know any attorneys until I was in college. Mm -hmm. Like I had never met an attorney. Um, and I don't know that I would have gone into law but I also think like if, if there are attorneys or judges who can go to small towns and rural communities and meet with students and maybe mentor students, um, law professors, right? Like coming in, like developing that pipeline of exposure and support and mentorship from a young age, that seems to be really, really wonderful. I know we're seeing some of it at the medical school where I'm at, just in terms of like STEM pipelines with mm -hmm. indigenous communities. Um, and that is just, 
so positive and so effective and so important. And I think that it's easily replicable um, in the legal space as well. So, so I would say like exposure at a young age, hybrid education models, those are really great. Um, I know there's always talk about like loan forgiveness. I think those things are helpful as well, but it does seem like if, again, if you're from a, a rural community, that's, those are the folks you want to have mm -hmm. a legal education and then go back and practice. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense. Um, we, on Law Review, we have a few different committee, committees, and one of them is our diversity committee. Mm -hmm. And this year, one thing that they're emphasizing is trying to recruit more hybrid students on Law Review. And I've oh, never considered, cool. yeah, and I never wow. have considered hybrid students to be diverse necessarily yeah. Yeah, yeah but it is it is best because it opens up the door to so many people yeah. who otherwise wouldn't be able to you know go to law school or join law review and it's it's cool yeah right yeah, I love that I never would have thought of that and that's that seems really key I think too um I'll make just a quick plug and maybe this would be good for both of you as well like there are always rural judges who are looking for clerks um, and even right now in Duluth, I have a, a, a wonderful person, friend who just got on the bench and is looking for clerks. And Duluth is, I mean, I'm biased, but these are really beautiful communities to yeah. live in. Um, and then you have this great experience where it's like, you know, this is not forever. You can try it on and see if you like it. And you still get this great professional experience um yeah you still get a lot of fresh air right like yeah. it's just it seems like it could be a real win yeah well and it seems like just from a like an administrative perspective like even law schools would benefit from supporting you know third third year students for a semester to go out and, and take hybrid courses while they're clerking right yeah I absolutely and then and like that's that's more than just flying in and out, right? Like mm -hmm. that gives you a bit more chance to develop relationship with a lot of different people and yeah. see what you like. One of my favorite dead well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> All of my judges are favorites, but one judge who I'm particularly close with is himself a transplant from Philadelphia, mm. who has lived on the range now probably for 20 years. And he'll never be like a ranger, yeah. but he just loves the community. And so I don't think we can forget about that, right? Like there's also the chance of that. Yeah. I think one thing that I would love to get your thoughts on is, so individual law students, of course, becoming involved in our rural communities would make a huge difference, both, I think, I think both for our communities and for the students. Um, what do you think is the best way for, you know, I think a lot of law students believe that they're on, on a track for uh, legislative work or policymaking and advocacy. What in your mind is the best way for us to advocate for our rural, rural communities and make sure that they're getting the access and the, to the resources that they that they do need. Right. Um, I love that you asked that question. I think that's a very critical one. 
I'm going to give you an answer that I think might be a little unrealistic. So please bear with me. We love unrealistic. Um, okay, good. Um, I think, especially if you have like an urban body, right? Whether it's a, a legislative body, a nonprofit organization, a university body behind your name. Um, I think the very best thing you can do is like get in your car and try and sit down and listen. Um, and there are a lot of interesting avenues for that. Librarians are really good people to talk to. Um, I'm trying to think like I use this language around community champions, like the people who are sort of the connectors in a community, like yeah. who should you talk to if you really want to understand both the barriers or the needs in a community, but also what's working really well. And I do this with our med students too, because they're sort of similar, like how do you get a feel for, for what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, so you have this you'll have these great credentials and you'll have this powerful institution behind you. And so to like even cold call a judge or go to the library, meet with a librarian, they see everything and people are much more likely to go to a librarian and ask them legal questions than they are to go just about anywhere else, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're a trusted resource with longevity in a community. Um, so I would start there, um, just in terms of like seeing what the needs are. And then, um, yeah, I'm. this is something that I'm kind of trying to figure out on my own right now. I'm working on a very different project around like rural housing precarity mm. with two colleagues at the University of Minnesota Law School and someone at the Humphrey School. And so they're like, what a nice group, right? Like. Yeah. Um, just in terms of someone who has the policy chops, others who have kind of the legal framework behind them. Um, it's, I feel like I'm always watching the how a bill is made video, like talking to people because it's just, it's so helpful to like follow the whole process. Like how do you take this need and transform it into a very clear policy recommendation? Um, but I don't, again, I don't think that you can ever like overestimate the value of talking to people and gaining that trust mm -hmm. and then reading up on different kinds of scholarship and critiquing it aggressively and looking at different kinds of policy reports and, and just trying to flesh out the whole picture of what you think might be happening and what you think should be recommended. Yeah. Michelle, it's been so wonderful talking to you about this. Obviously you're incredibly passionate about it. I think you've inspired at least one of us on this podcast to spend some more time <laughs> in a rural community. <laughs> um, are you saying there are only going to be two listeners? Like <laughs> you? It was a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, you too. We really appreciate you taking the time. I love talking to you both. Special thank you to online editor Amy Anderson and managing editor Becky Erickson for volunteering their time to interview Dr. Michelle Statz about her work related to access to justice in rural communities in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. We look forward to seeing you next time on Just Us and the Law, a Mitchell Hamlin Law Review podcast.